And welcome back once again to the Endurance Hour podcast, episode 403. Back alongside Kona coach Wendy Mater, Dave Erickson here. Glad to have you with us. Got some feedback from uh, last week's podcast, plus some really great questions and some interesting statistics today on the average finish times based on age group at Ironman races across the globe. I think it'll be interesting to see where you fit into that and how other people would have to fit in if they want to get faster or what would they need to be how fast they would need to be to be competitive in their age group, women and men at the Ironman distance. First of all, Wendy, the first feedback question we have is based on you and I talking about what an ego in transition yeah. or, or how people build themselves up. They talk too much and they don't listen enough, which right. means they probably haven't experienced enough to be talking the talk. What was exactly. that all about from Christy? You know, we were talking about that in the last podcast, how when we go to races, um, there's just people who just, again, it's an ego thing. They just talk about what they're going to do and what their training was like and how great they're going to perform. And chances are high, those people end up falling apart. They don't perform as well as you think they will based on the things they say. Mm -hmm. And so my friend Christy, who listens to the podcast, was at doing the Salem 70.3 in Oregon last weekend. Mm. And she had said her and her friend Bree were walking to the start of the swim, listening to males with an ego, yeah. um, bragging about whatever they were bragging about. So it tied in well with the podcast. So here's what she wrote to Wendy specifically. I'm dying. I'm listening to your podcast. And there was so much talk and bragging during our mile and a half walk together to the swim start. Kathy and I were rolling our eyes the whole way. It was annoying to have to hear all these people talking. Only men were doing it, by the way. So, you know, the thing about this is there's never a follow-up. A guy can do all the talking he wants and say, oh, I've been killing it, you know, mm -hmm. training, I'm averaging this, my watts are that, so much faster than it was last year, I PR this, blah, blah, blah. But you don't know, there's no follow-up at the end of the day, like, how'd your race go, you know? right. Mr. Exactly. Time. And, you know, and I'm trying to think of, of, of instances that I've been around a group of women or a single female, and I don't really recall it. I, it just seems so prevalent more among the males than it is mm -hmm. among the females. Mm -hmm. Maybe I just don't pay attention enough, but I'm trying to think of like, I can't see a, a female bragging about their swim, walking a mile and a half to a swim start or bragging about their race or bragging about past performances. Maybe maybe it's primarily just a men thing, male thing. I don't know. I would guess, just based on my interaction with women, that there might be if there's going to be something competitive, it'll probably be a passive aggressive competitive, or some <laughs> okay, sort of posturing that. Uh -huh. that lets the other person know in a humble brag type of way uh -huh. that they're doing well or they should do well or something about their training. Is better than it's been just to just to yeah. one up someone mentally or psychologically. Yeah, I, exactly. Passive aggressive. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's so many things when it comes to the, the male versus male and female versus female. And, and I don't know if this is a psychologist or whoever I heard this from, you know, men have the, the physical element, uh, aggression. There's a physical threat with two men. So, you know, you pound your chest, there's a potential for violence. For mm -hmm. women, because that's not really as much in their DNA, there is an emotional play. Mm -hmm. There's a psychological play 
that um, there's some social currency that women will play against like each that. other. Social currency, yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're, you're trying to position yourself. It, again, it's, it's social posturing, you know, reminding uh-huh. someone, this is where I stand in society, or this is where I stand in family, or this is where I stand financially, successfully, uh-huh. whatever it may be. You don't have to have the, the threat of violence like men would do, like, I'm going to beat you, you know, whatever. <laughs> you know, if you keep talking like that, women might do something, you know, that might hurt someone emotionally. Uh-huh. And so that's where I think that if you have a couple of women talking, you might just hear something a little bit different if you read between the lines of how they're talking to each other. Mm-hmm. This is a, from a guy's point of view. So tell me if I'm wrong. No, I kind of agree with that. And yeah. I'm from a female standpoint, I agree. I understand exactly what you're saying. I guess I'm around a lot of women <laughs> right now. So I, I'm hearing some stories and I hear examples of how uh-huh. that happens. Uh, this question from Melissa for Wendy. Good afternoon. Just finished the latest podcast. It was great. Thanks for using my question. It was cool to hear that on the podcast. And now it's the second time. Uh, your advice really helps. Went for a five miler today. I was definitely challenged because I haven't been doing a lot of outside distance running this year, but I got it done. I'm happy to be healthy and training. Hope all is well with you and hope your 5K swim goes well. So uh, thank you, Melissa. Now you're on the podcast twice. So what's the 5K swim? That was something you talked about maybe to me before or off the podcast last week. Yeah, you asked me about it at the end of the podcast last week. And I was I was going to do a 5K at the Georgia State Games. It's um, like a 30-minute drive in Ackworth Lake. And I woke up in the morning and I said, you know, I just don't feel like going. Hmm. My, my why was not strong enough to want to go. I did go swim, though, a 5K on my own at the Lifetime Pool. And it's, we have an outdoor pool, and it's beautiful. And I, I ended up getting there at, like, 6. Um, took about an hour and a half just to kind of casually, more or less for me, swim a 5K. And I was done before 8, which would have been the start time for the 5K in Ackworth. So hmm. I just wanted to go – I just wanted to do a 5K swim, and that was a good opportunity to, to do it. And then when I woke up and I'm like, I'm awake – I'm just going to go do it on my own. And I was really satisfied with that. You didn't prepay for it? No, I had cash and I was ready to pay. Ah. I was ready to pay race morning. I held off on paying because of the weather forecast. So I'm like, if I can pay race morning, I'm just going to hold off on paying. So that was another reason that made it a little bit easier not to go because I wasn't invested in it financially. Right. You didn't have any skin in the game, as they'd say. Right. Yeah. Have you ever, how, 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 how close were you to not doing a triathlon because you woke up on, on race day and that thought, ah, it just doesn't feel it today. Or have you ever never. woke up and not gone? Never. Okay. I've never woken up race morning that I was doing a triathlon and not gone. I've always gone. It's a good question. Interesting question. Maybe because again, I was more invested physically, financially, emotionally strong. Why? you know, for doing triathlon or a a running event. I, you know, I think, I think a lot of it is when you pay for it, you just feel more committed. You feel like almost like you have to go because you committed financially. Yeah. Um, and I knew I'm like, someone's going to ask me about it because we talked about it on the podcast and my sister knew I was going to do it. She was away for the weekend. She asked me like four days later, she called me. She's like, Oh, by the way, how'd the 5k go? Mm -hmm. I'm like, it went great. I did it in the pool on my own. Mm -hmm. You know, so 
even though I knew people knew, I'm like, well, you know, I guess my answer is my why wasn't strong enough. And good, good point. I wasn't financially committed. I think I've paid for a couple of triathlons that I didn't do for whatever reason. I remember paying for 70.3 Austin, and then I had an injury that as I, I knew I wasn't going to do it, but I remember prepaying for it. That was a bit of a bummer, but from where I live, it's gonna be a, it was going to be an expensive trip overall, but that was okay because I had an injury. And the first time ever last year, I didn't feel it for an Olympic, but I went the day before, picked up my packet, which I've never done before, and didn't uh-huh. go the next day. And that happened okay. last year. And I remember on the day, race day, uh-huh. I went for a run and I wore <laughs> the race day shirt. It was, it was a kind of an odd thing because I would never wear my shirt until I completed the event. But I, I you, wasn't feeling it. So did you decide the night before that you weren't going to go or the race morning when you woke up that you weren't going to go? I think I was already, I, in my head, I was thinking, ah, I just, I was on the fence the entire day. Mm-hmm. going to the race pickup and I even talked, I mean, I was even talking strategy. I was thinking, I was thinking all about the day and I was, uh-huh. and then I just, just, I kept on, I was waiting for the yes. And the, the yes wasn't strong enough through coming home, laid things mm-hmm. out. I was all prepared. And it's like, ah, and then maybe the, I think maybe race morning you get up, look outside. This doesn't feel it. It's like, I don't want to deal with this right now. I don't want to, go through this drive and the cold swim. And then it's like, it's not feeling it. It's like, huh? All right, I'm good. I'm good. Not doing it. And it felt so nice not to do it. So it was, a, it was the right decision. Yeah. Like I said, I felt so good to be done by seven 30 when my event wasn't going to start till eight. Cause then I'm like, okay, I can go visit my mother. I can mm-hmm. get some more stuff done. It was a bit more of a very like productive day because I didn't take the time to go. And then, you know, I just, I just didn't want to, you know, I had to be there by seven to pay register. So then I would have been hanging out for an hour. I just didn't want to do that. Like, I just didn't want to be waiting around for an hour. And I'm like, so don't go. It's so nice. The older we get, it's like, (laughs) I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. I don't have to. I don't have to. All right. Here's some questions today. Uh, This question from Cindy, is it necessary to keep your long run in zone two or do you do your long runs ever slip into zone three coach well obviously my answer is it just depends what you're training for and what your goal is there's a lot of lately in the last few months i've noticed a lot of other podcast articles about zone two training and i think for anyone experienced or inexperienced that's the way to start any type of training plan longer duration runs or bikes or swims is in that zone two I'm going to assume she's talking about zone two heart rate, but zone two could also be um, a power-based, rate of perceived effort-based, like a four or five on a scale of one to 10, um, or it could be pace-based. So zone two is just your aerobic effort, easy, the the effort you can go all day. And it's not as taxing as a higher intensity such as zone three. Now, the reason you would it'd be good to go in zone three for a long run. And I'm just going to assume she's training for like a half marathon, marathon, half Ironman, Ironman is zone three is going to be like a race pace effort. And so you do want to incorporate race pace efforts within your long run at a certain phase of your training plan. So in the beginning, you should stay in zone two because there's a lot of um, benefits to zone two training And then as you get more into 
the phase of training where you're doing sport specificity, you're doing a, a specific buildup to race a day, then you can incorporate some higher intensity, even zone four efforts, threshold efforts within your long run. So, you know, again, it's a, it was a question I saw in a different group, so I didn't have any, any feedback, but I just wanted to talk about it on the podcast. Cause mm-hmm. I'm sure a lot of people have that same question, especially a beginner, especially, you know, when we have these training plans that people are buying on training peaks who were not, you know, personally coaching they're they're kind of on their own to learn, even though we provide a lot of information for them within the plan, it could be a common question, especially for a newbie. I have a reference guide for heart rate zones for, uh, for runners. They have zone one, 50 to 60%, zone two, 60 to 70% of your max heart rate. Uh, then zone three is 70 to 80, and then 80 to 90, and then 90 to 100. And the intensities obviously go very easy, easy, moderate, hard, and maximum. So it is, it wouldn't be that hard to slip into from 70 or 69% of your max heart rate to 71% of your max heart rate to go between zone two and three. But how do you get someone to drop back down? Is it just a matter of maybe do a walk run or is it just forcing yourself to change your pace? No. And this brings up a lot of things that we could talk about. So a walk run is great, especially a newbie who's just starting a running program or multi-sport program, keeping the intensity low by by putting in walk breaks to get that heart rate down. Also just being aware of your, if you're training by heart rate, your heart rate by default could be in zone three, zone four, because it's very hot out or you're running up a hill, Mm -hmm. even though your effort seems to be that RPE of four to five, a zone two effort, your heart rate may creep up there depending on the terrain and the heat, as well as your hydration and fueling status. So there's a lot of factors. So that, again, it goes back to the importance of knowing what your effort is based on what kind of zone heart rate power or pace you are in for that day, because there's so many factors that could affect that heart rate specific zone. And just kind of being aware of things like if you are you don't want to force yourself to go in zone three when the training plan says stick to zone two. So don't force it. If it goes up there, you know, just keep it up there, see how you feel, log how you felt, and maybe it's time to reset your heart rate zones. So the importance of of training in a specific zone has to do with making sure those zones are accurate for you. Good answer. This question from Kathy, and there's some, a lot going on with this one, and I kind of uh, alluded to it in the introduction. I really want to go faster. Looking at my age group, I need to get faster on the bike. I am 60 years old. Is that possible? What are your thoughts about Kathy's question, Coach? So when I first read this question, the first thing I thought of, and we have talked, we have talked about this in the past, is, of course, it's it is faster. It is possible to go faster in your 60s, unless you've been in the sport as long as I have. So. I'm been in the sport for 30 years. And when I get to my sixties, I mean, I'm, I'm 50. I'm, I'm not anticipating or expecting myself to really get any faster than I was. Cause I've been training for 30 years. Someone who's very new to the sport in their late fifties, early sixties, of course they have potential to get faster because they are so new and 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 so exponentially as a new athlete, no matter what your age is, you will get faster if you put in the balance of training, specific endurance, technique, strength, threshold, and speed workouts. 
I also want to say is if you're training for an Ironman, you're less likely to get faster through an Ironman training plan because that's not the purpose of an Ironman training plan is to work on your speed. If you want to get faster, you should work on specific intensities that are more appropriate for like a sprint, an Olympic, 5K, 10K type of training plan. So I wanted to add that into the equation. And then also, you know, how fast do you feel like you have to get in your age group at a certain race? And that's kind of what you alluded to at the beginning of the podcast is there you found a site that has specific times based on certain age groups. Yeah. So this is the 60 to 64 age group for women across a couple dozen Ironmans. And these are the average times it says here for the finishers. And it looks like it's going to be in the low six hour range at best six and a half hours up to eight hours on average for your bike split. That's a fast bike split, six to six and a half for really any age group, but especially for the older age group, that's pretty fast. Six and a half hours to eight. The fastest I see here is 628 for Western Australia. The slowest was Cozumel at eight hours, or actually St. George, 810. And St. George is very hilly. Yeah. Arizona was surprisingly at 722, where Coeur d'Alene, I thought was more uh, uh, hilly, was 707. So it was faster for that age group in Coeur d'Alene than it would be in Arizona, surprisingly. And, you know, someone told me way back when I started triathlon, you know, 30 years ago, they said, I I met a professional triathlete who ended up um, being my boss manager at the Fort Collins Health Club that I worked at. He said it took him eight years to really develop the the sport-specific strength, endurance, and speed to be where he was at. And so I remember when I had been in the sport for eight years, I'm like, oh my God, Tony was right. I feel like I finally have that um, background, that foundation. And again, I started at a young age. So, I mean, you know, I started when I was whatever, 19, 20 years old. And so by the time I was in my late twenties and again, late twenties to mid thirties, I'm, I'm kind of riding the roller coaster of setting my you know peak of the sport. So it just takes time. It takes time, but it also takes the proper training intensities and efforts and recovery and fueling. And there's just so much involved in getting faster, but yes, you can get faster. This is interesting. It shows, um, these are the average time for the top 25 Ironmans across the country for these finishers, women 50 to 54 versus women 55 to 59. There's a small speed increase that I'm seeing across the board at the races. They say in Arizona, for example, uh, 50 to 54 women, 133 is the average swim, 658 average bike, 545 average run, for an average time of 14.35. Now, 55 to 59, so just barely one age group ahead. Mm-hmm. The swim increases by two seconds. The bike by six seconds. The run is four seconds faster. And the average finish time was nine seconds faster. Oh, interesting. For an older age group. I don't know that this is one example this is a, it's called run, And then 
this looks like oh this looks like a 2012 2012 article either way you know even if the, even though it's 10 years old it's not going to be that much different not that much different i don't think right there there's information out there and you know again if someone got in the sport at age 50 they're going to be peaking in their mid 50s to early 60s versus someone who got in the sport at age 20 who you know is plateauing when they get in their 40s mm-hmm. it's just there's just so many variables to factor in to placement and how you're going to place in a race. Now, I also want to say someone like me compared to running and swimming, cycling is my weaker link relative to my people in my age group. I I could, I always get, I would say crushed, but sometimes I do get crushed on the bike depending on the course. And I've been like that my whole life. And even those times where I've been very focused on my cycling and and have seen a lot of improvement in my cycling personally, it still has never been enough to get to where I want to be relative to my competition. Mm. So some people just aren't cyclists is basically my point. Yeah. Well, <laughs> speaking of cyclists, you did not plan this. This from Nick. This question from Nick. I'm an experienced cyclist who occasionally ran in the winter during the offseason. I'm planning my first Ironman next summer. I'm currently implementing running into my training schedule, focusing on running form, technique, and adapting my muscles. I was planning to start the swim part in November, December, thinking six months should be enough time to adapt as my overall cardiovascular condition is good enough. Is that correct, or should I start the swim even earlier? Oh, what a great question. So I would start the swim earlier and and take some assessment, take some baseline, if you start to swim earlier, just get in the pool and swim if, if you don't know what else to do, because then you'll you'll have an idea of you, how comfortable and confident you are in the pool. And if you can go and swim, your endurance is good and you can swim the distance and you're feeling comfortable, well, then hold off and start, you know, restart a few months later. But I always think the best place to know when you should start a swimming program leading up to an array, a race is just where's your baseline? Where are you at technique wise with all the, um, numbers of athletes I've coached over the recent years is, you know, I've coached athletes who put off swimming because they don't have pool access or they just don't want to swim. And then they're two, two months out from race day and they, they get in the pool for the first time in a year and they're panicking because they forgot how to swim, you know, and their technique and their breathing and balance and all that. And so they're in more of a panic mode than if they would have just, you know, just jumped in the pool when they started training. And even though they had six months, at least they know from the beginning where they're at and and what they need to work on. If they need to work on technique, some people catch on technique quicker than others. So I would just get in the pool, assess where you're at, and then that'll help you determine when you actually want to start training specifically for the swimming portion of your race. And when it comes to an Ironman, the swim is just 10% of the race, whereas right. the bike is 50 and the run is 30, well, they say 38-ish. So even though it's, uh, yeah, so you got 2% is the transition. <laughs> but anyways, that's about kind of the breakdown, right? Right, right. Yeah. And so I, I say I say no problem. You Six months is plenty of time to get ready for an Ironman swim. Having said that, I've worked with athletes who needed a year they because they just couldn't swim and they just were really struggling and they just needed more time. 
This question here from Patricia. This is kind of a, a deeper one for us, I guess. How do you help athletes improve their self-belief when it comes to sports performance? Coach? Well, I'm working with an athlete now and about this very topic, and I've been working with her for quite a while. You know, I think when you when you when you're trying to develop self-belief, that's a self-confidence thing. And it just is an experience thing. And sometimes this athlete I'm working with now, she just isn't giving herself a chance to get those experiences. So she's struggling with that self-belief about her performance and how she will perform and, and what that means. And I think she's also comparing herself to others and what are others going to think of me and blah, 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 blah. So it's just, you know, really, you know, diving deep into where they're, what self-belief means to them, like what, where they want to get, what they're trying to get to, and then working backwards, like any training plan, where do you want to be? Where, what do you need to believe in yourself come race day from a performance perspective? And what do we need to do now to get there? And a lot of that is from, from my experience and what I do as a coach is just getting this, an athlete to get as many different experiences mm -hmm. within their sport as possible because every experience is unique. And so you want to have, you know, poor, poor, poor training days and good training days. So you can compare what does a poor training day look like to you and what does a good training day look like to you? Yeah. Experience is the best experience. It's one of those, right. <laughs> you, you have to do it to, to know what it feels like. You can't just know what it feels like without doing it. Right. And if someone's really struggling, you know, maybe they just need more in-depth counseling. Maybe there's just an underlying cause of something that's out of my scope of practice. And we definitely, I've definitely referred people to other type of counseling, you know, psychology type of, of, of experts and uh, just to get to that underlying cause. And, and, and sometimes it's just this, an athlete could just be having very, very unrealistic expectations and once you kind of unravel that part of it and let them see, you know, what's realistic, what's not, and this is why, then they start to build that more confidence and that has to do with self-belief as well. Here's kind of a fun little question. Do people wear the same tri-suit throughout all disciplines or do they change? If so, what are people changing from and into what and when? Thank you in advance. <laughs> so... Yes, a tri suit is meant to be worn during the swim under a wetsuit, or even if you're not wearing a wetsuit, you can wear it um, on the bike and on the run. It makes it for easy transition. It's got a thin um, pad and it's lycra material. And so it's lightweight and it's just meant to be swim, bike, and run. You, I've never seen or known someone to wear a tri suit in the swim get out of the swim, take off their tri-suit and put on cycling shorts or a cycling jersey. I have seen people wear a swimsuit and I've done this myself, get out of the swim, take off my swimsuit in a changing tent, put on a tri-suit or I put on cycling shorts and a jersey or a tank top. And then I've worn that on the run. Here's this question from Rachel. I just started your swim faster in 30 days program, breathing, does it matter how frequently, meaning how many strokes between breaths, whether you use the same pattern all the time? What does she mean by that? So a breathing pattern 
and in the water. So some people will take two strokes, meaning one left arm, one right arm per breath forever. That's how they like to swim. Some people Mm -hmm. like to do bilateral breathing where they breathe every third stroke. Some people will breathe every fourth stroke. Some people like me, I like to breathe one, two, three, breathe, one, two, three, four, breathe, one, two, three, breathe, one, two, three, four, breathe. So I'm taking two, two breaths on one side and then I get to the other side, take two breaths. Um, I, I mix it up all the time. I'm a swimmer. I do hypoxic breathing where I, I'll take nine, 10, 11 strokes before I take a breath. So I, I get that feeling of feeling uncomfortable and needing to breathe. Um, doesn't matter. So when I do swim analysis, it's, with with new swimmers, a lot of times I tell them they're breathing too frequently and I want them to not breathe so frequently because a lot of times when they're breathing, it's throwing off their balance and they have a weaker arm. So a lot of times if you breathe every left, right, then, and you, you breathe to the right side, you ignore frequently, then you ignore your left arm and your left arm is apparently a lot weaker than your right arm. So I'll have suggest athletes don't breathe so frequently, put a snorkel on, take breathing out of the equation so they can watch what they're doing with their arms underneath them in the pull phase of the stroke. And then I'll have them, if, if someone wants to get into bilateral breathing, the first thing I'll have them do is get comfortable breathing to the side that's not comfortable. So a lot of, more often than not, it's someone's left side that they're, that's their non-dominant side. So they get comfortable breathing to the non-dominant side and then they bilateral breathe. I think that is more efficient with stroke mechanics and your ability to, to sight a little bit more frequently in open water. But ultimately, no, any breathing pattern's okay. It, a lot of it has to do on your current stroke technique and where you're at at that level. Yeah. Whatever works that keeps you balanced. Exactly. Balance is a good word. Balanced, then, then it's not working. Yeah. I, I, I swam for the first time, uh, second time since, uh, November, uh-huh. two days ago, just felt like it. It's like, ah, I had, I had a window of time. I'm going to go swim. I didn't want to, I didn't want to overthink it. So I just like pack the bag, mm-hmm. do this. Don't think, just go. And it was nice. And I was telling myself, what should I do? Like, how long should I go? Should I just go for 30 minutes? Pick mm-hmm. a time. And I got in there and I swear about 150, 175 yards in, my lats felt like they were going to cramp uh-huh. because I haven't used my lats in that way. And I was thinking when I'm in there, this is like um, hydro aerobics in a way, or it's, you know, water aerobics. I have, how many strokes have I just done without any break for that muscle? Oh, okay. That makes sense. If I've done 60, 70 strokes, nonstop, my muscles fatigued already because I haven't used that muscle for a while. Uh-huh. Uh, but I do know because I've done it in the past, it will go away. Just need to relax and don't try so hard. Mm-hmm. And okay, cool. Then I, I end up just doing, uh, I only did a thousand because I, I just a thousand, 20 minutes or so. And that was good. It's like, I feel good. That was nice. I'm going to just bank that and move on and not mm-hmm. think about it too much, but it felt great. It was nice to get back in the pool and I did notice somebody in the other lane as I was leaving their form and mm-hmm. they were breathing and they were bringing their chin way out of the water. Their eyes almost looked at the ceiling mm-hmm. and it's like, oh my goodness, you are not doing, I wanted to say something to, to them because their left arm was uh, dropping so deep and their right arm was going over their ear and it. yeah. it's like, oh, 
you are working way too hard. And, you know, I'm sure you see it. It's like you can't, it's not really right to volunteer. I don't, for me, I don't no, want to volunteer coaching to anyone in swimming because I don't know where they are, what their situation is. And I wouldn't want someone volunteering to tell me how to swim. Right. Uh, Cause they don't know me. And so I'm not going to do it to somebody else, but I saw that going, I wish I could say something. Yeah. That but, I can visualize exactly what you just described. Wow. And they're, Oh my gosh, don't do that. It's like, you're working way too hard, but we're all, that's why these video analysis that Wendy does for free are so helpful. She can see it from a, a you know, bird's eye view. And we have, we offer this by going to endurancehour.com. You get a free swim analysis. Um, what you're basically going to do is use, use your phone and, and record, have someone record you going, you know, 100 to 150 yards or meters nonstop so we can see you and then, you know, put together a little, little coaching. Just like, here's the basics. Here's what you, one or two things that you can work on. That's it. There's many more, but one or two just give you a head start. Next question and last question for today's podcast from Ken. I signed up for the Ironman Florida 2023. I'm trying to wrap my head around swimming in the Gulf. When swimming in choppy water, are there any different techniques you use? I always find it challenging to get into a rhythm when it's choppy. Or is the bottom line train, train, train in choppy water to get better at swimming in choppy water? Coach? Yes. Good answer. <laughs> Thank you for the podcast, everybody. See you next week. So, I mean, yes, you just answered your own question. If you can get in choppy water in a safe environment with people, with a, a rescue tube or uh, like a, a flotation device with you in case you need it, I don't recommend necessarily practicing in the Gulf because they have a lot of riptides and there's usually, I know people who live there and there's usually riptide warnings throughout the day. So that's not necessarily what you have to do, but if you can get in a safe body of water that has choppy water with someone there with you, I think that's the best way to do it. As far as technique and choppy water goes, um, practice in the pool, get short and choppy, get used to lifting your whole face and chin out of the water because you may need to, if there's a wave kind of coming right at your face, or if there's a wave that comes at your face from the side, it is beneficial in those type of conditions to be able to do maybe some breaststroke while with your face out of the water, do some head out of the water drill. Um, that's a drill that works on your technique, but it's also a drill to help you manage sighting depending on what type of chop that you're going to face in the ocean or in the Gulf. Yeah. Was it most recent you did? Was it 21, 2021 or 22, 21, um, 21 in, in Ironman, Florida. And yeah. I knew I was swimming in the Gulf and I actually, for me personally, I mean, I'm a swimmer, but I did focus more on strength training that year than I did less time in the pool than I typically do for training for an Ironman because of, of the riptide conditions that we ended up experiencing race day. So when I was experiencing that, that in the face current, when we made that turn, mm -hmm. I was strong and I felt okay with it. I didn't realize it. I didn't realize it was a riptide. I just thought there was water, like a boat was in front of me, splashing me with water. That's kind of what it felt like. But there are a lot of people. I mean, I think there were 500 athletes or so that didn't make that swim cutoff because they got stuck in a ripped 
a riptide and they couldn't, they weren't, they weren't strong enough to propel themselves forward. Mm. And so you do want to be strong. The fact that you're aware that it could happen, you're a step above someone who has no idea that that could happen. And so become strong, become a confident swimmer and practice in an environment that's safe in a current, if you can. One mindset trick I would use for when we used to have the mass swim starts is to know in your head, this too will pass. Mm -hmm. That it's only, it's going to be, give yourself, you know, so many seconds or minutes before you know it is going to smooth out. So same thing with, I don't know, I never swam in a riptide. How long will this take if I'm in here? Don't panic. You know, be prepared for three minutes worth of hard swimming, if it, that's what it is, until you get that buoy. Just like going around a buoy in a crowded space. No, just fight through it. Someone's going over your back, hitting your legs, pulling yourself. It's going to pass. Stay positive, stay calm, get through it, give yourself 15 seconds, it'll be gone. And that's mm-hmm. kind of hard to do when you're in the moment and you're, you know, flailing out there. <laughs> oh, I got to get past. Oh, there's too many people around. Pause. It's okay. They'll get past you. They'll swim past you or they'll drop off, whatever. It'll pass. Yeah. That's my little mind trick. Even on the same thing with running, uh, climbing a hill on the bike. It's only, it's only so far at the top. I can relax, but let me just head down, grind, stay in the moment and cycle through it. Same thing with swimming, I think. Yep, Exactly. Good tips. Coach, uh, good feedback today and really strong questions too. I mean, I, I thought there's some really challenging ones in there and seeing things that people can uh, take away from hopefully and maybe give us some feedback for the next podcast and you'll be featured. At least your question will be featured on the next episode. And that will be next episode be 404. Any final thoughts or plans for you this weekend that you may or may not participate in? Yeah. <laughs> I'll let you know next podcast if I participate in anything. <laughs> All right. And I'll let you How know if I you? do anything. I don't really have anything. We have a birthday weekend. I don't have anything real physically that I'm doing. I, I mean, I, I bike almost every other day, most likely on the Peloton just for the exercise. Mm-hmm. But no, I'm just uh, just working, just doing podcasting and, and job stuff and just staying fit. Not yeah, for performance, I mean, but for fitness. Um, yeah, my 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 training is still strength recovery. I'm trying to strengthen my quad. My quad is unbelievably still really weak and really small. I still have about a one inch difference between my right and left leg, and it's kind of bumming me out a little bit. And so my motivation to get on my mountain bike and ride my hills in my neighborhood is I got to get this quad stronger, and that's a that's probably my best way to do it. You know, I'm doing some some trying to do heavy strength training, but it's just so weak. It's not that heavy. I'm not lifting very heavy because I'm so weak. So that's really my motivation is just to get this leg and knee and everything healthy again. And I'll do some activity on the weekend. So ask me ask me on the next podcast what I did. You know, when you're so deep in the in the weeds, they say, of training or recovery, rehab, whatever it may be, it's hard to to realize it'll, it'll be over soon. And next thing you know, the quads will be where they are. And you look back going, boy, it, it went by, went by fast, but in the moment it's like, oh, it took, takes too long. I can't wait for that to happen. Yeah. And that I do look like, back, oh, over. Yeah. you know, I, I do look back at videos I've taken of, of my recovery and my leg. And I did that last weekend and I'm like, wow, 
oh my gosh, I I have come so far, you know, and um, I'm, I know I still have a long way to go to be where I want to be. And that's just with not being achy all the time and doing some form of, of running again. And it just, yeah, I can't wait till that time where I'm like, I'm here. And then we'll, we'll reminisce about, ah, remember when it was so hard? Yes, exactly. Yeah. I can't wait. Looking forward to that time. Thank you so much for uh, allowing us into your ears for this episode of the podcast. For Coach Wendy Mater, I'm Dave Erickson. Have a great week of racing, training, or recovery. We'll see you back here next time. Adios. Adios. Mm-hmm.